This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. This is your Need To Know Financial Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now today we've got another very interesting episode for you. We're joined by Moz Afzal, the Chief Investment Officer at EFG Asset Management, to chat about the global markets and to get his inside scoop on what we have in store for 2023. And did we get the scoop? Now, if you haven't heard of EFG International, it's a leading Swiss private bank renowned for its unique client approach with over $200 billion assets under management. And if you've ever visited our website, Showroom Partners, you will see that we're also owned by EFG, which is fantastic as advisors because we're able to tap into their global and macro economic data and research. So really great tool that we have here. And you could say today, our conversation with Moz, we're really sitting down with one of the big bosses today. So we're super excited. Now, EFG Asset Management is the asset management arm of EFG Financial. So they're the ones that give the advice to the global investors, right? At the end of the day, they have actively managed investment products and services to private private clients, institutional investors, and financial intermediaries around the world. Moz joined EFG Private Bank back in 1994, so he's clearly got a long tenure at the bank and a wealth of knowledge and insights when it comes to the global markets, international equities, and fixed income, as you'll get that sense when we deep dive into the conversation with him. Now, he has a really impressive resume, and we have popped them in the show notes for you to read. That's right. So after you listen to this episode, you're going to see that clearly he's an absolute expert in capital markets. So it was super, super interesting for us. Now, remember, our chat today is not considered personal advice. And even though we're registered advisors at Shore and Partners, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Uh, everything that we talk about is based on facts known at the time, which is the 8th of November, 2022. So welcome, Moz, to Talk Money to Me. We're really excited to have you on the show. It was great to, great to be here. Great to be uh, in Australia. <laughs> yeah, welcome down under. How's your trip been so far? Um, I, I can't describe it. Lots of jet lag and very busy. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, squeezing a lot in in a short period of time, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate you um, you squeezing in the time to sit down with us and have a chat about the global markets because we know that you have a lot of insights in that space. So I guess we want to kick off our conversation by setting the scene on the current market conditions as you're seeing them play out. You know, how are you feeling about the market? Is there anything that you're really worried about in terms of bad news, more to come out? Like, do you think more downside has to be priced into the market as, as you're seeing it? We're on a kind of a, a strange situation in terms of markets as well as the global economy. And it's a very different playbook to what we've seen over the last you know, 10 or certainly 10 years or 12 years or so. The previous 
sort of 10 or 12 years have been driven by kind of deflationary forces. So high unemployment rates, um, worries about deflation rather than inflation, negative interest rates and so on and so forth. You know, this time around, we've got, you know, unemployment rates actually surprisingly low. Um, So unemployment rates in in many countries are are near record lows. At one level, that kind of ticks a box. And then we've got, of course, due to COVID, due to the tightness of the labour market and this sort of sudden rush of uh, spending, leaving, you know, inflation just sort of trending higher. Obviously, the central banks have then raised interest rates to tackle that. And the speed at which central banks have raised interest rates is, is unprecedented unprecedented. So something that we haven't seen since uh, the 70s. So the market adjustment to that has been quite furious, uh, particularly by the fixed income and and, and the bond markets. Um, And that sort of speed, if you like, uh, of adjustment uh, has caused the uncertainty. In normal environments, if that speed was a lot slower, as we've seen in, say, previous you know, interest rate cycles, for example. Markets are usually able to digest that and, and try to sort of move forward in, in, a reason, in a reasonably calm way. This time around, so the message I really want to give is the speed of change has been the development that's caused um, the uncertainty in markets. But I think we're coming now to a point, particularly, say, the U.S. Federal Reserve is thinking about peaking of interest rates and something that will happen in the next month or two. And stock markets and fixed income markets and, and currency markets are actually antis- starting to anticipate that. And so you know, our view is that certainly in the short term, stock markets, given the investor positioning is so so bearish, that we could see a bit of a short-term rally that could last sort of two to three months uh, before we start to see economic slowdown next year as a result of those interest rate increases. That's always nice, a little bit of a Christmas rally. Um, But I know in the US, obviously, we're coming to the end of their calendar year. So there may also potentially be some uh, loss taking, do you think? Uh, Yeah, exactly. So tax loss selling, as it's called, is essentially crystallising your losses on some of the stocks that are down the most. And essentially, that gives you the uh, tax loss, which you can carry forward. It usually starts around kind of, you know, September, October and November. It usually stops around here. So we're probably coming to an end to that. Oh, that's good to know um, because people are, you know, trying to enjoy their Christmas break. So (laughs) that's probably why not looking at the market. I always find it kind of interesting and a little bit counterintuitive that, you know, unemployment is at record lows, yet you know, the rest of the world sees that as kind of a bad thing. I mean, you'd like to think that low unemployment should really be a good thing. That's a tricky part of, you know, the situation we're in and why it's very hard to forecast, you know, why markets are falling or, or, or even rising. Uh, but the, the fear is more about um, interest rates going up dramatically to curb inflation. As, as we've seen, commodity price inflation, wage inflation has actually been picking up uh, you know, heavily because of that tight uh, employment uh, market. And the fear is that the cumulative interest rate increases the Federal Reserve and others have done will lead to a slowing economy next year and, and potentially a recession. So that, that is where the fear is coming. 
Okay. So speaking of fear and risks, the global economy and the market is very much a mixed bag when you look at recessionary risks. Um, So can we do a little bit of a speed round and you give us a brief comment on the likelihood of going into a recession in the near term? Because this is what our listeners continuously hear. This is what we see all over the news. So US is the first one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, mild recession for next year. What about Western European economies? Well, they're already in a recession now. Uh-huh. So uh, if anything, they they will sort of bobble along, you know, around these sort of levels into next year. What about Eastern European economies? Um, they're, they're in a tough spot, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, Russia. Uh, Russia is, oh, that's an interesting one because they, they created quite a bit already and they'll probably st- stay very weak. But yeah, towards the back end of next year, given the base effects of, uh, you know, a, a drop in economy, they could start to to stabilise. Interesting. What about China? Oh, China is just simply down to the um, COVID zero policy. So, you know, our view is that um, May time is when we think that they will start to open up. So the Chinese economy could kind of rip ahead at the back end of next year. That's interesting because they're already starting to loosen their policy at the moment, aren't they? And they're having an outbreak of cases. But that is good to know. Okay, last two, we've got developing market economies and Australia. Okay, so developing market economies in general. So um, I, I think there will be a, a mild recession, but, but to be honest, may not even be noticeable. Uh, because the the employment situation is still relatively tight, so um, and unemployment rates in general are the the big driver to kind of recessionary conditions. So, kind of a mild recession is what we're looking for. In Australia, from what I've seen so far, it looks to be pretty solid, pretty robust. Um, but similar to, to to the developed world, maybe in the short term a little bit weaker. But if China starts to pick up, then clearly Australia is a beneficiary of that. That's it. So we're the lucky country and skip the recession once again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's, it is quite amazing. It's one of the, the few economies in the world that's able to to, to counter it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have to be careful. There's not too much complacency there. That's true. Definitely. Good point. Look, Australia's not immune to inflation. We we get the headlines, you know, just as much as the global markets do. But what was everything's it? just always expensive here, though. That's the thing, all the time, <laughs> and always increasing. Yeah. What was interesting in a recent publication that you wrote um, at EFG was, and I quote, it was called "The Winds of Change." It explored the issue of the market that you've just basically outlined, right? That we're all battling with the big inflation the big risk of inflation, I should say, and and the path and how soft it's going to be. So naturally that leads to the second part of the question, is it going to be a soft or a hard landing? And recently the Federal Reserve made a comment in question time that may have been missed. I'm not sure if you heard it, but they sort of alluded to the narrow uh, window for the soft recession is getting smaller and smaller. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with this statement? And I guess what's your take on inflation in the next, you mentioned in the next two months, we could have a bit of a Christmas, Christmas, you know, bear market rally. But more broadly, do you think there's a lot of commentary that um, we could have really fast de-acceleration of inflation next towards next year? Yeah, so um, base effects are actually starting to kick in quite a bit on the inflation front. So obviously inflation is year on year. So whatever the prices were 12 months ago, um, you're taking that as your base effect. So what we're seeing is commodity prices over the next three to six months, remember they peaked 
in the Q1 and, and parts of Q2. So that base effect becomes quite a big hurdle uh, for inflation to continue at the same rate. So what we're seeing in terms of just purely base effect impacts, they're about 06 to 0.8% per month for US uh, inflation. So if you accumulate that over a five to six or seven month period, you're, you're looking at inflation dropping you know, somewhere between four and 5% over the next, call it 12 months or so. And of course, with the slowing economy uh, and the Fed, you know, is caught in this sort of dilemma. If they raise rates too much, and this is the point that you made earlier about the, the narrow pathway, if they raise rates too much, they'll cause a recession and then have to cut rates again. And money markets are really pricing in rate, rate peak and their rate cuts by the end of next year. Now, that's not a great look, I would say, in general. You know, if you raise too much and have to cut them because you made a mistake. It's mismanagement, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think they're quite conscious of that. And you've seen, um, you know, different Federal Reserve board members starting to talk about peak rates. And you know, what's interesting about the last Fed meeting is their statement seemed to be relatively dovish, mm. but, but uh, Powell was a hawk. And, um, and, and the way I think about what Powell he's doing, he continues to stay a hawk. He continues to, to tell people that we're targeting 2% inflation. The Fed, by the way, hardly ever gets to 2%. They're either overshoot it or undershoot it. So, so uh, it, it's one of those things. But to me, it's all about anchoring. So the messaging you want to give to people, and I think you know, Powell's speeches rather than the text are, um, you know, sound bites are usually out there uh, much more than the text is. And the messaging he's giving to the people is, look, if you go out and ask for a big pay increase, say above 2%, the chances are we'll go to recession, which means you'll be out of a job. So he's trying to get people to really think about, um, you know, tempering their expectations not sort of going out and, and asking for the 5 6 7% pay rises, because that will cause inflation because it becomes entrenched. What you've really got to do, and I urge everybody to do this, is to read the text yourself, the original source of text, make up your own mind, and then just figure out what Powell is doing in terms of jawboning is making that sure that people, people's expectations don't go wild. Yeah, it's an interesting point you've raised because if you look at like the intraday minute by minute trading of, you know, the S&P and the NASDAQ, when the speech is getting read, exactly to your point, it was very positive. It started to rip at the first half of the statement and then he brought us back down to reality, at least in the last announcement. Um, So that's a really good key point you're saying is just to go back to the text. Um, It's a hard job. (laughs) Nobody wants that job, right? Uh, The real challenge um, for, you know, central banker, particularly if you're if you're Jay Powell, is that everybody in the world listens to you. So, you know, if you're, uh, you know, maybe the ECB or the Bank of England even, uh, or the RBA, no one's really going to spend too much time around the world, you know, looking at what you have to say, because you're, you know, you're the leader of policy essentially in in, in, in the US. So, uh, so every every word is you know taken very seriously. Um, but they spend a lot more time on the text than they do on the press conference. So, uh, so uh, you know he's he's of course very well prepared, but he's trying to give you messaging that he wants you to think about, where the text is much more about the real economy. 
That's a really interesting point. So to all our listeners, actually read the text um, and then help, you know, make up your own mind. But to be honest, I think from all the things that I've been reading and listening to, a lot of people have just lost a lot of faith in the Fed anyway, um, because it is hard uh, looking back on what has been done and, you know, wrong moves made, etc. So following on from that, I think what we're all asking, right, is do you see the US dollar continuing to be really strong in the next 12 months? Because that's obviously done very, very, very well. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a really good point. I think one of the messages I've been giving on on this trip is that, um, uh, you know, the dollar over the last decade, you know, has been very strong, partly because the Federal Reserve has by far been the most credible central bank, uh, you know, in the world. But there are... um, Things developing now, i.e. higher inflation, um, not just in the U.S. but elsewhere, but also actions that the U.S. government took, both in terms of fiscal policy, so spending a lot of money, that's obviously dollar negative, and then um, by taking the reserves of Russia, if you're uh, Chinese, if you're Middle Eastern, or if you're Japanese, you're now going to think twice, am I really going to leave my reserves in the dollar because they could just confiscate them if, if, uh, if they didn't like what I did or, or didn't like any policy uh, that I was uh, proposing? And I think that to me is, you know, the first, you're always looking for, you know, what is a chink in the armour? Um, because so far that dollar has been absolutely strong. And certainly over the last, you know, well, since 2008. Um, and you've got to start to you know, think that if, if the world is turning, say, more normal, as it was, say, pre-global financial crisis, that came with a period of actually a strong Aussie dollar and uh, a strong uh, and a much weaker dollar. So if we're returning to a more normalised environment, then, uh, you know, it's not necessary the dollar will continue its strength. So that's one message I want to give. There, there are kind of quite geopolitical impacts that have happened over the last 12 months that are going to make it less appropriate for the dollar to, to be stronger. Uh, fiscal austerity will, will come along and uh, you know most governments have been you know, spending far too much money, which is also going to put some pressure on the dollar. And then finally, that last point, if we're moving to more normalised environment, then it's not necessarily dollar positive. So, so you know, I think we, we definitely have to look at our kind of portfolio allocations and be more widespread. You know, think about, it's quite funny, as I've been traveling, I'm talking to people about UK equities or European equities. Nobody's remotely interested. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's because it's been all about the dollar and US equities over the last 12 or 13 years. But it's a big, you know, wide world out there. And there's some great European companies and great UK companies that are devalued by, sort of 20% or so just from the pound dropping off. And the UK economy is now going to get as competitive as it has have ever been. Um, you know, I, I run a global team and it's cheaper for me to hire people in London than it is in the US or, or, or in Switzerland now. And that, you know, is, is something that really adds to the competitiveness of the UK. Definitely. You mentioned, you know, going back to normalised kind of rates and economic environment. So what's normal, do you think, in the Aussie dollar? Like we love a good prediction here at Talk Money to me. <laughs> we do. So, you know, what what do you think that Aussie dollar is going to trade around? And on the second part of that is 
your your global um, portfolio manager in equities. Any interesting Aussie companies that you think might benefit from a falling Aussie dollar and potentially a stronger Aussie? Sorry, a falling US dollar and a stronger Aussie. In that sort of environment, you really want to be uh, in a much more domestically focused company. So, um, uh, you know, banks are having a bit of a renaissance, right? Because as interest rates go up, uh, you know, they're making net interest margins um, like bandits at the moment. So that we think will continue, uh, you know, for the time being. And they don't necessarily pass on those those interest rates that you'll probably notice your current accounts are still quite low relative to the uh, RBA rates. So that's all going into their into their, um, their profit margins, you know, at the moment. So we have a bit of a sweet spot, certainly for the next six to 12 months in that. And the economy is not exactly in deep recession that means that they need to write off you know credit loan losses so we have a bit of a sweet spot for financials and they of course very domestically orientated so and they do their business in in aussie dollars so um so it's important to to kind of focus on that uh, on those types of companies um I've kind of had mixed views on on obviously the next obvious questions on on the commodities um because if we do have an economic slowdown next year, then obviously it'd be less demand for commodities. But obviously we've got China potentially coming out of zero COVID. So that offers a bit of an offset uh, there. So I think the the um, commodity and resource stocks will will do reasonably well, but there are some headwinds in a slowing global economy. Yeah, I mean, we believe that we're going into a really a commodity super cycle um, here at Shore and Partners. So that's a really interesting comment as well. I guess what we want to know is when is our Aussie dollar going to be parity with the US again so that we can actually travel there without spending an absolute fortune? Like, is um, that in the foreseeable future? Um, no, unfortunately not. I, I think it's going to take a little bit more time uh, for, for that to happen. Uh, but it, it needs maybe, you know, rate cuts in the United States, maybe back end of next year or 2024. Um, and then, yeah, so start saving for the next 12 months and you might be able to afford it. Well, by the way, with the pound down as weak as it is, I, I might I suggest a trip to the UK. Yes, yeah. that is an even better idea. <laughs> I do love Europe. <laughs> yeah, no, and and you know the UK. Uh, you know we've got lots and lots of tourists coming over because certainly with the pound as weak as it is, it, the UK is cheap. I, I find it. It's probably even worse than than you. I find traveling outside of the UK just really, really expensive, uh, and shopping outside the UK is really expensive uh, because the pound is so weak. Everything looks, you know, much harder to be able to afford for us. Likewise, comes UK, everything is so much more cheaper. Sounds like a plan. We'll come and visit you. But we might wait till after our summer um, when it's your summer again because it might be a little bit too cold for us. Uh, yeah, well, certainly kind of May-June time is usually the best time in the UK. So while we plan our summer vacation to visit you in Europe, we're going to dive deeper into your thoughts on more about the interest rate hikes that we're pricing into the market, geopolitical risks as well, big topic, and touch on the US earnings seasons, which is pretty much now coming to an end. But before we do all of that, we're just mm-hmm. going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we've just heard the Fed recent November announcement. So I guess what is your take on the raise? Too much, not enough, too little, too late? And one additional question here. So there's obviously been a lot of market talk as of late that the Fed may actually pause or pivot. Uh, I know that Aussies kind of decoupled a little bit with our 25 basis point raise. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next December meeting? Show us, you know, your crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. So I think the 75 basis points that they, um, that was, uh, that they did was well priced in. And I think it would have been a bit of a shock and a surprise if they didn't do that. Um, I'm, I'm more of the view that they will probably do sort of 50 basis points um, at the next meeting. Uh, we've got two inflation prints before that meeting. And so we're starting to see those base effects that I talked about earlier kind of starting to kick in. So that will give them, if you like, the air cover to kind of do 50. Um, now, the market is pricing in 75 at the moment or a high chance of a 75. I think that's a bit too much. And I think, um, uh, you know, we'll start to see you know, some of the inflation prints coming out. We'll hear from different Federal Reserve board members, the guys who actually wrote the text, um, you know, starting to feel a little bit more concerned because they've done a lot in a very short space of time. And um, that creates a huge amount of uncertainty, certainly around, say, pension funds. We saw that in the UK. Those uh, pension funds had to deleverage very aggressively because interest rate expectations obviously went through the roof. And so they're starting to feel a little bit more conscious that if they go too fast without really seeing those lagged impacts of the rate increases they've done already, for example, 30-year mortgage rates in the United States are above 7%. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, that's already starting to impact the housing market. So they probably want to, you know, if it was up to them, they probably would have loved to pause right now um, and kind of see what impacts they've already had because those the, those lags, you know, three to six-month lags um, need to kind of start playing through. And so they are now conscious of making a mistake, um, you know, raising too much. And then, as we talked earlier, having to cut them again is not a great look. Um, it kind of shows you you're not really in control of things. And they came already under a lot of criticism for being too slow when they did raise rates uh, and didn't do it earlier. Um, and so, um, so I think they're starting to feel a little bit more nervous about, you know, keeping up this kind of 75 trajectory. And, and, and investors and markets... No, they like straight lines. So if it's done 75 last time, we should do 75 again. And I think at some point, you know, interest rate expectations, I want to call them exponential. So every rate increase you've done has a bigger impact than the previous one. And so, um, so we're hitting that sort of peak 
exponential impact now. That's a very good point. That is a good point. And you just mentioned uh, the UK pension funds. So I kind of just want to touch on that briefly because what a disaster. Can you explain kind of what happened to our listeners? UK pension funds, uh, typically the legacy pension funds have what are known as defined benefit schemes. So they're guaranteeing a certain amount of cash flows to, to the scheme members. And so what the UK government did uh, actually some time ago putting new legislation forcing these pension funds to kind of match the cash flows that they're supposed to give to those pensioners. Um, now, unfortunately, those derivative contracts, they, most they leverage derivative contracts. And with the big sell-off in the bond market, uh, which was you know, accelerated by um, uh, Liz Truss and, and failed policies, meant that interest rate expectations really shot up. And the gilt market, i.e. the long-term UK gilt market, collapsed to the point that those bonds had collapsed 40%. And remember, they're government bonds, which means that they're supposed to be risk-free. Wow, (laughs) 40%. Yeah, 40%. So if you're a pension fund that suddenly is hit by its loss in capital reserves, so they had big margin calls to meet this derivative contract. So they had to deleverage very, very fast. And so, you know, that caused all sorts of havoc. Obviously, it's stabilised now with the impact that the Bank of England intervened, uh, as well as now Rishi Sunak in trying to calm the market's nerves. Now, the message for everybody else in the world is you can't spend too much money now going forward. So the bond vigilantes, as they know now, now, now known as, are coming in and saying, look, we are not going to fund you, um, your extra deficit spending. And so that's a big message for everyone in the world to, for governments to start, you know, reining back their uh, government spending. So it's, I, you know, the UK is like a canary in the coal mine. Mm. Um, for everybody else. So the party's essentially over, right? We've had a decade of just in insane amount of QE, right? And we're coming to the end of this steam train. We've been driving with our eyes closed almost. And I guess another risk that the market is really tackling and battling is the geopolitical risks. So, you know, how can investors, in your opinion, best protect for the little bit unknown, right, in terms of their portfolios, positioning with these conflicts, in particular with China and Russia, Ukraine and and so forth. So what what's your message there? Yeah, obviously, you know, I, I always call these, cause these events low probability, high impact events, right? So, you know, if you worry about them too much, your, your, your investment portfolio will be a bit of a mess. They're sort of low probability, but if they do happen, you know, they're high impact. So what we try to say to investors is, that, look, we have geopolitical risks are always around. Before it was Trump and, and geopolitics. Uh, before that, it was terrorism. Uh, you know, so these, these events are out there, you know, constantly, and you just need to be wary that they're aware, but but just don't let it ruin your investment portfolio, because I think people overestimate the impacts that they have uh, on their portfolios. Typically, what I always tell people to do is think about the risk you're trying to or that you're worried about. So, good example is the China Taiwan development, and again, low probability. I don't think the Chinese government wants to create huge amount of instability in their own population by invading you know, Taiwan. We think of Taiwan as a singular event, but 
the most important thing for the Chinese Communist Party is civil stability. And you could ask yourself if they did today or tomorrow attack uh, Taiwan or invade Taiwan, what that would mean in terms of reaction from the Western world on uh, you know, banning uh, you know, imports, stealing their reserves, and so on and so forth, that would cause a huge amount of civil stability, uh, instability in China, which is what the Chinese government does not want. You've got to think about sort of the hierarchy of, of needs, um, and civil stability in China is, is the hierarchy here. So, so I think that's quite important to kind of understand how these things play out. So how do you hedge yourself if that were to happen? And, you know, we kind of think about, for example, the Hong Kong dollar. So Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar, and it has been forever. If there was an invasion, the first thing that would come under attack is that Hong Kong dollar peg, if reserves are confiscated, cannot continue. And so you could see a huge drop in the Hong Kong dollar. And Hong Kong dollar hedging, for example, today is very, very cheap because it's always been, you know, um, pegged. And that peg has never broken over the last you know, 40 years or 50 years. So, so, um, so you've got to kind of think, be smart about hedging yourselves and not, as I said, ruin your portfolio by, for example, you know, not owning any Chinese stocks or something like that, because that's also not a great idea. What was also really interesting is your points around not looking at the macro too much, kind of like cutting down the noise and actually looking at the individual companies, um, because that's what we're trying to do at the moment. So with US earnings season still underway, I guess, what are your key takeaways so far? Are there any stocks which stood out to you, either in a positive or negative light? Um, we know that there's some big names still to come out like Cisco, Home Depot, Walt Disney and NVIDIA. Uh, do you have any thoughts on these stocks as earnings seasons comes to a close in the US? Sure. I think probably the big takeaway from this earnings season is how poor the outlooks of some of the big growth and tech companies has been. So you know, Apple, again, sort of um, uh, putting out a bit of a warning on, on their iPhone sales just yesterday. Um so, and the same thing, the outlooks of, you know, Amazon and, and, and Google, Meta, have all been relatively poor. Um, and, and I think that what they're kind of telling us is that um, the, their sort of big growth spurts they've had over the last two or three years are now, you know, firmly drawn to an end. They're all cutting costs. They're all laying, laying off people. And, uh, you know, that expansionary phase that went over the last two or three years is starting to to hurt them. So I think they're going to be looking to consolidate. Uh, and then f- rather than focus on revenue growth, they're now starting to focus on earnings growth. That means cutting costs, um, um, you know, stopping the spending on some of these sort of you know, crazy projects that they, that they had that, quite frankly, we all knew would never, ever make any money. So I think that um, a bit of discipline is coming in. So these, these companies are going to consolidate. But the good news is these companies are really good at producing earnings if they just cut some of their excess spending away. And the valuations have come down, you know, quite substantially. So, you know, they're probably not huge buys right now. They're more sort of consolidated positions. But those earnings will come through over the next couple of quarters and they'll probably, we'll probably end up revisiting them, uh, you know, towards, um, you know, the second half of 2023. Um, the, the companies that I'm really focused on right now are around the consumer, 
So consumer discretionary um, in general uh, is down quite violently over the last 12 to 18 months because this fear over recession has been um, uh, you know, quite, quite, quite severe. There's high interest rates and so on and so forth. That, uh, you know, and, and high commodity prices have kind of eaten away at, at, at consumer um, savings that they had and consumer spending. That that's the fear. But what I think the, what the market is missing is that is that the consumer is still relatively healthy. They've still got cumulative savings, and more importantly, they're still in jobs. And even with a mild recession next year, we're not going to see unemployment rates going up very much. So um, we think the valuation anomalies are really in those types of companies. Um, uh, give an example, you know, U.S. home building stocks are um, trading at you know very low single-digit P.E. multiples, and, um, and when I look at those um, that those companies, they're, they're down quite a lot. But you know, there's a big structural shortage of, of of homes in the U.S. and actually most countries. You think their long-term fundamentals are actually pretty much intact, and um, uh, and they'll still continue to build homes because there is a need for them. There's shortages in in most of those larger uh, you know countries. So so. Uh, some of those areas are really undervalued relative to those expectations. And, and you can see why they've done so badly, because people are thinking about 7% mortgage rates in the United States. Oh, that must be really bad. But um, that is all priced in. So um, we look at defensive stocks versus consumer cyclical stocks. And on our measures, you know, they're looking as cheap as they've done in the last 30 years. So they're they're looking particularly attractive to us. Yeah, and I uh, agree with that statement because if you look at certain parts, if we just look at the US economy, you've already had the massive sell-off and the bottom, so to speak, is, is has happened, right? And then the recovery. Whereas the, the mega tech uh, and the fangs of the world, like you said, are only now kind of feeling the pinch. But what stands out would be Meta slash Facebook. They don't seem to be putting their foot off the gas when it comes to costing uh, for um, reducing costings, right? So that's a good kind of segue if we can go there with you, Moz, just to kind of wrap up this really great episode with you is what do you think's in store looking ahead for 2023? Like if we tackle the big end of town, like the mega tech and those consumer discretionary tech names, you know, those those mammoth companies um, and, you know, more potential defensive names that you do like, you know, we haven't talked about healthcare, but that's a good place to hide out in volatile markets. So just generally, you know, give us your flavour of 2023 for the equity markets. The the key thing is, is that we, certainly in the short term, thinking about the next couple of months going to be reasonably good for, for equities, particularly if the Fed starts to hint that they are indeed uh, starting to think about uh, peak interest rates and, and starting to slow the ascent. That will give the market a bit of an excuse to, to, to rally up. That could last possibly into January. And then I think we, we, we go back into consolidation phase because then the fear is, our oh, earnings are going to start to come down because the economy is going to be weaker. And so healthcare will continue to be uh, pretty strong. We're also starting to see biotech is doing quite well. And you saw Johnson Johnson's purchase of Abiumed is a really good example of how cheap biotech has got that the large farmer is starting to, to take them out, at, in this case, nearly 50% premium. So valuations in biotech do look really attractive. 
And so the healthcare complex you know, continues to look like you know, certainly a winner, certainly for the next you know, three to six months. And then we'll start to get your pencils ready for those consumer discretionary stocks and, and really look for those companies that are down 50%, 60% from their peaks that are sensitive to interest rates starting to fall and the economy staying you know, reasonably, reasonably strong rather than these, a deep recession because we don't believe in deep recession uh, certainly for, not for the next you know, couple of years. So, um, uh, so yeah, get your pencils ready and, and sharpened for finding some really good uh, consumer discretionary names that you can start to add to uh, in, in, in Q1. So that will be my sort of, you know, kind of sector playbook. And tech really, we've got, a, a, you know, a, the one stat that I'll, I'll leave you with, which I think is quite interesting, is Apple's market cap is equivalent to all of the Russell 2000. You kind of think that even if there was a bit of rebalancing in investor portfolios from those mega caps further down the market cap scale, that um, uh, you know we'll probably see this continued outperformance we've seen over the last couple of months in the small and medium-sized companies because they're a lot more agile, and particularly history tells us they're more, much more agile at fighting higher inflation rates as well. So, so, um, so I think um, that, that will be really interesting. And then final is think more global. You know, the world is not just the U.S. You know, think about Japan, think about you know the U.K., think about Europe. Great companies, um, you know, the luxury companies in Europe are performing really well. You know, the the LVMHs, the Hermes, the Ferraris, you know, um, and if China reopens, guess what? They love their, um, um, you know, luxury items. What are your thoughts on the semiconductor industry? Because that's been spoken about a lot at the moment, as well as your thoughts on, I guess, credit. Obviously, after everything that happened um, in the bond market in the UK, you know, what are your thoughts on government bonds, private credit, etc.? Sure, right. So let me start with the fixed income side. So we recently upgraded our outlook on investment grade credit because yields are actually very high. In fact, the highest they've been since... You know, 2005, 2006 in some cases. Obviously, I'm excluding global financial crisis, of course, but but yields are actually very high. Um, investment grade yields something like 6% at the moment in US dollars, um, which is very attractive. I mean, you know, we haven't had that certainly over the last decade. And the spread, i.e. the extra credit you need to get over government bonds is also in the top 25% of the historical range over the last 20 years. So we're being adequately compensated for taking on investment grade credit. So that's where we've been leaning in over the last uh, few weeks. Um, we upgraded and we'll continue to lean in over the next few weeks and, and, and next few months. So we think that's quite an interesting opportunity. In terms of high yield, we think it's a little bit too early because um, if the economies around the world do indeed slow next year with the weight of those uh, rate increases, you know, there is a chance that default rates will continue to start to pick up. Uh, although nothing like what we've seen over the last decade, that means that th- there's more uncertainty around high yield and the spreads are not in the top 25% of the historical range. So uh, probably less interested in in private credit and high yield right now but will we get more interested in that probably in the new year so that's on the fixed income side um, and um, uh, you know some of the sort of um, other areas we kind of you know discuss you know consumer discretionary international equities that continues to be 
uh, you know, uh, our kind of favoured areas more strategically over the next kind of five to ten years um, as we have maybe a little bit more of a level playing field. Great. So, yeah, fixed income. I mean, so basically investment grade at the moment, that's what you're looking at rather than high yield. And did you have a little comment on the semiconductor industry? Because Candice and I are very interested in that sector. And it's all the talk at the moment because they've really been sold off horrifically. So uh, I'm a bit of a semiconductor, you know, long-term fan. And we've made for our clients huge amounts of money over the years uh, in, in semiconductors. So uh, we turned uh, a lot more bearish last year, um, partly because uh, we're worried about um, you know, over-ordering by companies. And I think that has happened. Uh, and then you talked about um, NVIDIA a little bit earlier and um, you know, Nvidia suffered due to the crypto bust because a lot of their cards were used by crypto miners, um, and that is all, as we know, kind of washed out. But Nvidia, for example, um, has just come out with their latest kind of gaming card, mm. uh, and it just looks absolutely awesome. But they they warned last quarter, um, and I suspect they might warn again. But after this earnings season, you know, I'll start to warm up on on the whole semiconductor uh, area because um, um, they've washed out. Inventories are very, very low levels. Again, they're down 50, 60, 70 percent from their from their peaks. So valuations are now much, much more reasonable. And then we'll start to go back to a normal cycle in 2023 and 2024 they'll start to bottom out over the next um, you know, couple of months. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's starting to look interesting again. So, you know, I'll be a net buyer now than, than being a, a seller over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months uh, as we were. That's good to know. I mean, there's essentially in everything and everything that we do. So it does make a lot of sense. Um, now, Candice has one last question for you. I know we said that last question about three questions ago, but, you know, we're really trying to um, make the most of our time with you. So Candice, what's this question? Hardest one you'll hear all day. What <laughs> is your preference, coffee, tea or tequila? Oh, gosh. Right now it's definitely coffee. <laughs> That's right, after jet and, lag. And all right, here's another tough one. Is the coffee better so okay. far in Australia or the UK, would you say? Oh, Yes. Oh, well, that's a pretty tough one. I mean, there's lots of these kind of specialist coffee shops uh, opening up in the UK. Are they run by Aussies? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Always the case. How funny. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah, I've had some pretty good coffees. I've been well treated here uh, at Shaw's since I've I've been here. So I've had some really good coffee. So, yeah, I'll I'll edge it to Melbourne so far. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been extremely insightful um, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your trip in Australia. Thank you. What a fantastic episode, Candice. Honestly, we managed to get so much information um, for our listeners and it was just really insightful to see what next year is going to bring and I guess his thoughts on the various economies. Yeah, a lot to unpack with that episode. I'm personally going to re-listen to it a couple of times because there was so many good little insights and I guess the sharpen your pencil moment really is massive for 2023 because he is right. It has been a really uncertain time 
super volatile. The playbook's completely different for 2022. So let's wash away this year and hopefully we see a recovery for 2023. That's it. I think think global, right? Global opportunities that don't just look at Australia and don't just look at the US. I think that was a really important point. Yeah. He's obviously bullish on the UK. Now, before we sign off, guys, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoring Partners, please note our discussion today with Moz does not constitute as personal financial advice because we don't, and neither does he, know your personal circumstances. So as always, if anything in this conversation sparked your interest, reach out to us, but don't take it as personal financial advice. And it's all based on the facts known at recording, which is the 8th of November, 2022. That's it. And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Now, remember, you can always ask us various questions as well at tmtm at equitymates.com. And we're super excited that Candice and I have actually cracked over a thousand followers on our Instagram. I know it's not that many and our fake account did have a little bit more than us. However, we're pretty excited about it. Um, we're not the best Instagram marketers. We'll be back next week. Until next time, enjoy your coffee. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the EquityMates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, EquityMates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.